0: Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Alan Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Alan Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copland Fund for Music. Supporting non-profit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music.
1: The centerpiece of our program was this fascinating new concerto for theremin and orchestra by Dalit Warshaw. Theremin, of course, is that incredibly unusual and unique instrument uh, created in 1919, 1920, exactly 100 years ago, and first patented in 1928. Uh, Ostensibly or reputedly, the very first electronic instrument, invented by a Russian scientist named Lev Theremin. So I thought in, even though the piece is by uh, an Israeli-American composer, Dalit Warshaw I thought it would be nice to surround Dalit's concerto with two great Russian masterpieces. So we began with a gorgeous little overture that I've actually never done before. It's the overture to the opera Prince Igor by Alexander Borodin. Uh, you very possibly know those great Polovetsian dances, which are the most famous part of the opera, but there's a, a quite gorgeous overture. Uh, what's interesting about this piece is that like so many of Borodin's works, it was left incomplete at his death in 1887. As you may also remember, Borodin made his living not as a composer but as a very celebrated chemist and medical doctor and was really a a founding figure of the Russian chemistry establishment in the 19th century, but managed to find time to do a great deal of composing and was a member of that sort of informal group of Russian nationalist composers in the mid-20th century, the so-called Mighty Handful or the Kushka as they were sometimes known, that included also Rimsky-Korsakov, Mussorgsky, the father figure of the group Balakirev, Cesar Cui and Borodin himself. So Borodin and Mazorsky were great friends for many years, and would actually there's a great story of them coming home on the weekend from conservatory as young men, hauling a different instrument and spending the whole weekend trying to figure out how to play those instruments. They were really, in essence, inventing Russian music or, or a whole world of new Russian music uh, and music that really was in its in a very powerful way distinct and different from the music of of the more Western parts of Europe. So Borodin, during his whole long career as a chemist, continued to compose and wrote a great number of beautiful and fairly important works. But chief among his works was his magnum opera, or his magnum opus, his opera, Prince Igor. He managed to finish great parts of it, big, big parts of it, but it's a, a big four-act opera. Um, and he actually worked on it on and off for 18 years, from 1869 until his death in 1887. And then upon his death, uh, his good friends and, and fellow uh, nationalist composers, Rimsky, Korsakov, and Glazunov, went to his house and took all of his his materials, his sketches, his scores, and worked, as they had done also with Mussorgsky, to, quote, complete the works. And they found Prince Igor in rather incomplete, uh, form in fact the overture the piece that we're about to play didn't really exist written down but borodin had played it at the piano many times for his friends and so glazunov reconstructed it essentially from memory so this is really equal parts glazunov and borodin it's a very soulful beautiful tuneful uh, work and uh, like so much of borodin's music i'm thinking of his his symphonies in particular it sounds to me like cowboy music now the reason it sounds like cowboy music isn't because borodin liked to write cowboy music it's because so many Hollywood composers appropriated these kind of swashbuckling sorts of uh, themes that Borodin seemed to favor. And so whenever I hear certain pieces like this overture, I think of, of cowboy music. So here it is uh, the original cowboy score from uh, somewhere between 1869 and 1887 by Alexander Borodin, his overture to his great opera, Prince Igor. It's performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.
1: That was the overture to Alexander Borodin's opera, Prince Igor, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on the program, sort of the centerpiece of the program, uh, is this fascinating new concerto by Dalit Warshaw. Dalit Warshaw is a New York-based composer, who was, in essence, a sort of child prodigy composer. She's now a teacher at, at many institutions in New York City, and a uh, very established and uh, wonderful composer and a wonderful human being. But she's had a very interesting history herself as both composer and performer. She started as a pianist as a very young child, in addition to being a sort of uh, prodigy composer as a 5- and 10-year-old, and studied with a, a very celebrated New York-based Russian-born Piano teacher named Nadia Reisenberg. And Nadia Reisenberg had a sister uh, named Clara, who ultimately became Clara Rockmore. And Clara Rockmore is very much universally known as the first great virtuoso on this fascinating first electronic instrument, the theremin. The theremin had been invented by Lev Theremin, the Russian scientist, uh, in 1919, 1920, first patented in 1928, uh, and quite a phenom when it was introduced, uh, because the instrument is essentially played by simply waving your arms in the air, in, in the front of the instrument, around the instrument, uh, and sort of interrupting the frequencies and creating an incredible otherworldly sort of woo-hoo kind of electronic vocal sound. Uh, And Claire Rockmore um, managed to meet theremin. In fact, they became very close. They became lovers. And uh, she uh, championed this instrument and became the first great virtuoso on it and was really uh, theremin's muse. Theremin had a fascinating life himself. He lived in Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, eventually came to America where he spent a great deal of time with Claire Rockmore, uh, but also promoting his instrument, the theremin, among other things, uh, which was mass-produced, actually, actually by GE at a certain point, uh, I guess in the 30s or 40s, and then eventually, there was a crazy story of his having been perhaps kidnapped by the KGB and brought back to Russia. But in fact, I think that story has been debunked. He left America for tax reasons and returned to Russia and lived a very long life, uh, returning only in the 1990s as a celebrated elder statesman, and then I think returning to Russia where he, he passed away. But uh, this instrument really it itself had a sort of interesting history in that at first it was this, it was proclaimed as this amazing new innovation that would change change the course of music, the introduction of electronic instruments. As you can imagine, being 1920, it was a, a very long time before electronics were really introduced. We think of, of the instruments that came from the, the Moog synthesizer and the very first synthesizers in the 1950s, and it was only in the 60s, 70s, and now, of course, more so in our own time, that electronic creation uh, has really come into full flower. Interestingly, Robert Moog, the creator of the Moog synthesizer, was captivated by this. This idea of the theremin as a very young man and in the 1950s made some of the very first theremins not made by Dr. Theremin. And both Dalit and Carolina Eck, our our great theremin soloist, play Moog theremins. So Moog actually, along with his Moog synthesizer, uh, developed quite a career creating theremins. So anyway, Dalit uh, was a piano student of Nadja Reisenberg, the sister of Clara Rockmore, and Nadia died, when I, th- I believe, when Dalit was nine years old. And Clara, her sister, really adopted, sort of spiritually adopted Dalit as her student, and Dalit would go play piano pieces for her and play her new compositions for her when she was a, really still a child and a teen. And Clara eventually agreed to teach Dalit how to play the theremin, which she did. And Dalit became an uh, extremely accomplished thereminist. She's now currently in semi-retirement because she'd had a, an arm injury unrelated to theremin playing. But um, she'd always wanted to write a piece for theremin and orchestra uh, and has written shorter pieces for theremin alone, but never one with orchestra, and really wanted to write it as a tribute to the great Clara Rockmore, her, her mentor teacher, and also write it for this absolutely extraordinary german-born thereminist carolina Eich, which in fact she did so these were the second performances of the piece it had been done a few weeks earlier in boston by the boston modern orchestra project we were very proud to do the piece carolina Eck uh, is a fascinating performer you can see all sorts of videos of her playing theremin on youtube if you just google theremin or carolina Eich or both um, she has developed her own kind of performance positions, these eight positions of her hand that she has sort of in the air that play a scale, and then she moves it. And it's quite an extraordinary thing to see her playing this instrument, but actually not touching anything. So the instrument sits in front of the player. There's this antenna, at least in Carolina's case, on her right-hand side sort of jutting into the air. And then there's this kind of strange round other antenna on the other side that she manipulates with her her left hand. She never touches the instrument. Um, The left hand deals with amplitude, loud and soft, depending on how far away or how near she puts her hand or moves it. And her right hand is the one that manipulates pitch or frequency. And so depending on how she shapes her hand, she can create scales and all sorts of of incredible uh, glissandi effects and things like that. So it's a, a fascinating thing to watch. It looks, like, it looks like a seance when she plays because she's just conjuring sound from thin air in designing this piece, Dalit decided to make it in traditional three-movement form, the three movements are a typical concerto. The first movement is called Clara's Violin, the second movement is called Ulysses, and the final movement is called Fugal Horn. The first movement, Clara's Violin, is about Clara Rockmore, and it's sort of an homage to her, so you hear at various points uh, the, the theremin interact with solo violin, because Clara Rockmore's uh, original instrument was violin before she discovered the, the theremin. It's a very kind of touching Sort of waltzy kind of movement. Uh, the second movement, Ulysses, is fascinating in that Dalit is playing with silence and melody. There's a an observation by Kafka that uh, his reading of the the passage of of the Odyssey, in which Odysseus encounters the Sirens, is it even more devastating than their gorgeous song that that tempted men to their their death? Essentially, were the silences between the song, and so Dalit creates this kind of continuous sort of modern-sounding, beautiful melody, but keeps interrupting it with these strange little silences. So it's this idea of playing with with silence. And the last movement, fugal horn, is really just a, a fugue, chunky Hindemith-like fugue in which the, the the theremin and the orchestra both play the same materials and then they're organized in this kind of very advanced round technique, which you may or may not notice. But ultimately, uh, they join together toward the end in this swooping kind of thing that, as Dalit kept saying, the, the theremin does better than anything else, this kind of incredible glissandi going up and down the scale back and forth. And it's as if the the orchestra turns into or amplifies this giant theremin. It becomes a metathermin and together the theremin and the orchestra join together. So here it is, uh, the second performance, as ever, of Dalit Warshaw's uh, amazing theremin concerto, Sirens. The theremin soloist is Karolina Eck, and the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music.
1: The last work on our program is uh, now my new favorite piece in the world. I don't know why I never got around to doing this piece. I understudied it with the great Andre Previn, who was one of its leading exponents. And I also, as a young conductor, when I was the assistant conductor with the L.A. Philharmonic, where I assisted Mr. Previn, I also was very close to the great uh, German conductor, Kurt Zonderling, who, frankly, for my money, gives the greatest, still has the greatest recording of this piece ever made with the Leningrad Philharmonic. So I, I've worked with two of the great champions of the piece, but for some reason, because i I was simple, I think I kind of early in my life Uh, completely incorrectly dismissed Rachmaninoff's music generally as this, you know, hyper-romantic, over-the-top Hollywood sort of thing. And it was only in discussions with Mr. Zonderling that I really began to understand, as as he pointed out to me, that obviously we, we know that most of Rachmaninoff's great works were written before Hollywood even existed. So it wasn't that Rachmaninoff was a Hollywood composer, it's that Hollywood composers stole from Mr. Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff's music is particularly cherished by Russian people, because it is perhaps the most Russian music ever written. And I think that grows out of the fact that Rachmaninoff spent so much of his adult life outside of Russia— This piece was written during a a three-year stay in Dresden, Germany, around the time of the 1905 first revolution in Russia. But in 1917, at the big revolution, uh, he moved his family uh, first to Sweden, and then eventually they came to the, the U.S., spent a lot of time in New York, back and forth between Europe, particularly Switzerland, and the States, and ultimately settling finally in Beverly Hills, where he died. And Rachmaninoff, During all these years in the diaspora, away from Russia, the leading observation of people who knew him was that, you know, his whole life he yearned for his homeland. He felt this incredibly close connection to to his homeland and, and missed it terribly. And wherever he went, wherever he lived, he sort of built a little bit of Russia around him. He would always have his samovar with the tea on, and he always surrounded himself with other Russian expats, and really never kind of got over the fact that uh, he had to spend so much of his life outside of Russia. And uh, people also said that he was the, the saddest, there's some quote that he he was the saddest person someone had ever met, that he had very, you know, sad eyes and seemed to you know be in a way although he had a wonderfully rich successful life a very lonely person largely because of this idea of never being never being able to really be home or to go home and i think even though this is an early work before his final departure from uh russia in 1917 one already feels this incredibly beautiful nagging touching nostalgia that just pervades the work as you possibly remember, Rachmaninoff had a rocky start to his composing career. He was first of all proclaimed um, in his early twenties uh, in the in the eighteen nineties. Uh, he was proclaimed, you know, one of the great coming Russian composers, and was considered a real titan as a young man, particularly by the greatest composer of the day, Tchaikovsky, who was just near the end of his life. But knew Rachmaninoff's music and was a great champion of his, and really interceded on a couple of occasions to really help Rachmaninoff, particularly with his first opera, Aleko, which was premiered at the Conservatory. Tchaikovsky was one of the judges. Tchaikovsky recommended it to one of the leading Russian opera houses, and they ultimately produced the work. Uh, so Tchaikovsky was a great champion, but there is this famous story of uh, Rachmaninoff's first symphony being premiered in 1895, and it being an absolute kind of train wreck, particularly the performance was a train wreck. Composer Cesar Cui wrote an, a devastating review of the piece, saying that it was sounded like a symphony in hell, and uh, the reviews were terrible, the performance was terrible, the reception was terrible, and it it drove the sensitive young composer, Rachmaninoff, into this deep, deep depression. And uh, it was only after, essentially, psychotherapy, which was a new art form, and this wonderful, very forward-thinking Dr. Nicholas Dahl, who did hypnotism on on Rachmaninoff, having him repeat over and over again, I will write a new concerto and it will be good. Ultimately, he came out of this deep funk, and in 1901 or so, his... uh, second piano concerto appeared finally getting through this writer's block and it did in fact become this huge cultural sensation and re Rachmaninoff as the leading russian composer of the day and really got him through this first terrible crisis of his creative life. So not that long thereafter, he married, he had a first daughter, and during that early revolutionary period, 1905, he left for a few years and went to Dresden with his, his wife and small child, and it was there that he wrote this great second symphony. I should say also that Rachmaninoff was also becoming a a very big figure in Russia. He did come back in the summers. He spent two years, actually, as the conductor of the Bolshoi Opera and Ballet. So he had a lot of experience as a conductor. He was one of the great, towering piano virtuosi of the 20th century and continued to be and really made his living as a a piano performer as opposed to as a composer. But he sat down and wrote this extraordinary symphony in 1906 or so. It was a a big utterance. It's almost virtually an hour in, in length, depending on how one interprets it and it was immediately acclaimed a great, great work and performed all over the world. Strangely though when it began to be performed regularly in the United States and recorded, various conductors asked for cuts. They felt it was a little too discursive and Ormandy cut it and various other conductors cut it in the 1920s and 30s and over the 1920s and 30s this group of 29 cuts came to be sort of the standard accepted version and Depending on how many of these 29 cuts a conductor took, the piece would go from being about an hour down to actually as little as 35 minutes in length. So it cut out almost a half of the piece, or certainly a good third of the piece, that's very draconian cutting. I can't even imagine. I didn't even look at the cuts. I have them listed in one of my scores. I didn't even want to look at them because they seemed so terrible. And to me, the idea, it's a little bit like the what I guess we call the Bruckner idea. You know, Bruckner had a similar thing where he was a little insecure about his symphonies and began to take advice. And everybody told him, cut this, cut that, cut this, cut that. So his works exist in all these different versions. It's almost impossible to know what the original version is in some of the pieces. And Rachmaninoff, similar thing with this piece, that once you cut any part of it, there's sort of a question of, well, now you've sort of mutilated it, why would you stop there? So I really chose, this being my first time actually performing the piece, to do the entire uncut version, which was something that really was not done from about 1930 until 1974 when Andre Previn made this kind of revelatory uh, recording in London of the full, unexpurgated version, and it was viewed as this great revelation. People were like, wow, this is a great piece. I wonder why it's been cut all these years and all these recordings are are different versions of the cut version. So I decided, like Mr. Previn, to do the complete work. And I must say that I find it to be an incredibly compelling and Convincing work. I, I I'd be hard pressed to know where to cut. It's true that you know the last movement is a little bit discursive, and there may be one sort of recapitulation too many, perhaps. But other than that, I think the piece is very tightly argued. It just exists in a rather large time span. The works, as as you know, if you know the piece at all, the the, the themes are so extravagantly beautiful. It's almost as if every movement, even the scherzo, even the supposedly dance, lively movement, you know, suddenly you arrive at this gorgeous second theme. Um, so the themes are are ravishingly beautiful. The construct, the architecture, I think is quite compelling and beautiful. The development sections make sense. So I'm, I'm almost f- uh, flummoxed as to why conductors felt they had to cut it, other than to fit it on a, the early 78 recordings. I think that may be how it got started, and then it sort of ended up existing beyond that, that need, but it's a great puzzlement to me why people would cut this work. Anyway, the work is in four, four movements. It begins with a slow, dark introduction at the very bottom of the orchestra, and, and I almost have this feeling, you know, Rachmaninoff feeling so close to Tchaikovsky and, and essentially being so close as a young man to Tchaikovsky, it almost seems to me like the symphony begins where Tchaikovsky's sixth final symphony leaves off. You know, Tchaikovsky's sixth ends with this incredible depiction of death uh, and, and ends with this kind of rumble at the very bottom of the orchestra at B minor. And here this piece begins in E minor, sort of climbing out of that same world. And uh, in the opening introduction, Rachmaninoff lays out all the kind of thematic fragments that will then become the main material of the entire piece. So it is very much very well organized, I think, structurally. Uh, and that leads to a very beautiful and extensive first movement, uh, a second movement that's not the usual slow movement. The second movement is actually the scherzo, a very driving, exciting, almost 20th century scherzo with a a fascinating middle section that is this kind of wild and very difficult fugue for the orchestra. It's, it begins with the second violins playing this jagged theme by themselves followed by the rest of the orchestra, so very challenging musically. And then the the scherzo returns. The third movement, the heart and soul of the piece is that gorgeous slow movement that uh, after a short introduction in the strings reveals one of the most glorious clarinet melodies in the entire repertoire, which is then taken up and extended by the violins. And in the return, in the the violins take over the clarinet line. But it's it's an incredible example of just how broad and extended a melody Rachmaninoff can spin. It is just the most beautiful music in the world. And then the last movement is a really quite extravagantly f- frenzied, I almost think Wagnerian or Straussian sort of utterance. What's interesting to me is during the time that Rachmaninoff was writing this piece, because he was living in Dresden, he really got to know the music of Richard Strauss And he knew a great deal about Wagner, but I think he got more entranced by the music of Wagner. And what's so interesting is that even though Rachmaninoff's music almost sounds like it came before Richard Strauss, or even Wagner, because it sounds so romantic to our modern ears, obviously he was writing this music in the 20th century after so much kind of modern-sounding music had had already been created. So to me, this last movement seems to owe a great deal to Strauss's tone poems, as well as to things like the Meistersinger overture. And uh, it has a sort of virtuosity that you don't find in most 19th century symphonies. Anyway, the work is gigantic, it's magnificent, it's just overpowering, and we were really honored and delighted to play it, and I was so delighted at how beautifully the Albany Symphony performed it. Here it is now, Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2 from 1906. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.